0: As you're turning to Matthew 10, uh, <clears throat> so I'll just make it why well, it's in my mind. I can't tell you why. Uh, I'm not going to tell you why. But uh, the devil and all his little lackey demonic forces are liars. They are liars. He is a liar. And God always tells the truth. And so on that note, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 10, uh, we'll be in that in a moment. Continuing our study in the book of Matthew. Um quick little aside because of today, uh, I don't have my thoughts really organized here, so I'll just kind of wing it. Uh, studies have shown, and in fact, let me do this. If you are a person who was within a year of the start of Northside that is now Graceview, If you were within that first year, and and you're here this morning, would you raise your hand, hold it up just for a moment. I'm kind of looking around. Several right here, some right here, looking over. Yes, all right. Um, Studies have shown that churches go through generations, and typically, here's what they find. That first generation that begins a work has to really struggle. And they struggle to find, you know, it's what pushes them to begin a new work. And what they struggle through is what are the important things? What do we stand for? And they have to work through that. And they have to make choices. That's not what we're about. And this is the main things for us. And so they go through that. And then a second generation comes along in that church. And often they will also have to learn those things. Because maybe they didn't know it all their life. And so they learn them on a deeper level. And they they even establish that church even more, typically. And often it will grow even more under that second. But they tell us that something happens, the third, fourth, fifth generation, that all they've ever known are the truths that that church stands for and all the programs. And so all they do is benefit from day one. They've never known a time other than that. This is what we believe, and this is what we do. And they just enjoy those aspects of that ministry. Unfortunately, often what happens is they lose their appreciation. They start taking things for granted years and years later. You say, where are you going with that? Well, I'm not really talking about church here in this point. The other day I got to hear a lady talk for a few minutes, being interviewed, and she's from Lebanon, and she was sharing how she, as a little girl, literally had to hide Uh, from people trying to kill her and how Lebanon used to be like the jewel of the area there but when the governments changed and things took over that literally she, she had to just run and try to hide and run for her life and barely making it by and so here she now lives in these United States and this woman's passion I mean like just was booming through the interview you couldn't miss it and my point there is She wasn't here in 1776 when our nation began, but to her, it is brand new. She has seen what life is like outside of our borders. Unfortunately, we're living 244 years later, and we're taking it for granted. A lot of the things, a lot of the truths, a lot of the sacrifice that has taken place. And people are forgetting how good of a country the United States is. We got a lot of warts. We got a lot of problems, and we need to address those problems. But I'm telling you, I mean this. I might be wrong, but I want to hear somebody nominate something better. This is still the best country in the world to live in. And our country's forgot about that recently. We need to remember that. So happy birthday, America. And thank you, God, for letting us live here. What a blessing. Take it for granted. Matthew chapter 10. In a moment, we're going to read verses 16 to 23. We're building, right? So chapter 9, let's review very quickly, and maybe this is the first time you're hearing this study. And so we just, like, give me a minute, right? One minute maybe. Jesus, everywhere he goes in Galilee, keeps drawing these enormous crowds. Literally, these crowds affect his stomach. It moves him. He has such pity. He has such compassion. They're beat down by life and by sin and by pain and sickness. He eventually turns to his followers, which were probably many And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful. I mean, the need is great. And the success rate is going to be great. But the laborers are few. In fact, he says the harvest is so great and the laborers are so few, he tells his followers, you need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Pray for him to send down laborers out into the field. Somewhere not long after that, Jesus goes up on a mountaintop, literally, no sleep, all night long he prays. We know that this happened the day before he chose his apostles. That night he prays all night. I'm assuming he's praying to the Father, the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into the field. He comes off of the mountain, and from his many disciples, followers, students, obedient followers, he chooses 12 that he empowers uniquely. And he calls them apostles, and they're going to be sent. You're going to see that in a moment. Then, that was chapter 10, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, they're named for us. Again, he empowers them. He gives them the same power to heal, to cast out devils. Last week, what we noticed is that as Jesus starts giving these instructions to the 12 before he sends them out, he gives them a very unique assignment. They are to go only to the Jews. In essence, only to the Jews of Galilee on a short-term mission trip. He tells them as they go, you are to heal people of their sickness, cast out devils. He even says, raise the dead. This is part of their assignment. So very unique. Go only to the Jews. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles, to the north and the east, to the Samaritans, to the south, Mediterranean to the west. Focus only on the Jews. Your message is that to the Jews, your king is at hand. Your kingdom is at hand. You need to repent. And so that's not our message exactly today. That's not our main message. That is our message, but not our main message. They had a unique message. They had a unique assignment. They had unique power. But we still saw some lessons that applied to us. This morning, as we're getting ready to read verses 16 to 23, this is part of a larger chapter, right? So this whole chapter 10 is Jesus giving instructions, principles, and now today we're going to move into prophecies about his followers' assignments. Follow closely what I'm about to say. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the uniqueness of their assignment, drawing principles that apply to us today. So, we had to make a distinction. Today, because this is a lot of prophecy, this is a prophetic nature passage. I don't have time to prove this, so you need to look it out, look for it in your own life. I'm telling you, this is very defensible. Most prophetic passages, many, many prophetic passages in the same set of verses, sometimes side by side, will have prophecies that have a very near fulfillment, and sometimes they have a very distant fulfillment. And some of what we're going to read today, it didn't take place on this short-term mission trip. Probably most of this didn't. There may be a few things. So then what's Jesus talking about? There were some things that were going to be fulfilled in their lives down the road in the book of Acts. After the book of Acts finishes somewhere around 62, 62, 63 A.D. On into the first century, even at the end of their lives. But listen, what we're about to read really is a prophecy that projects over the last 2,000 years and is still going. So this is not just things that applies to this short-term mission trip for these 12 men. This goes to... All generations of Christians. Last week, I made a distinction. They had a unique assignment for them, unique empowerment. We drew applications. Today, you're going to read some things that we don't have to make applications. These apply, or these directly are interpreted in our lives. This is what to expect. With that in mind, would you look at verse 16? So Jesus is continuing his charge and his challenge to the 12, but now we know that it goes broader than that this time. Verse 16. Behold, let's read it slowly. The most important part of our message today is right here, what we're about to do. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out. I am sending you out as sheep. You're like sheep. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You, my followers, my apostles, my messengers... I'm sending you out. You're like sheep that's being sent out to wolves. Next word. So, be wise. Translation, don't be stupid. Be wise. So, because you're sheep in the midst of wolves, be wise. How wise? Very unique. We we, we say this is always negative in the Bible. Not always. Jesus says, be wise as serpents and Innocent as doves. Be wise. Be innocent. He continues giving instructions, principles, and prophecies. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts. And they will, notice the sentence continues, flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors And kings, note this next three words for my sake, for my sake. He continues with why to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So, when this happens to God's people, what should they be thinking on the inside? When they deliver you over, you're in that scenario, you've been handed over to the governmental authorities. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Very unique. For it, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit, capital S, but the spirit of your father who's speaking, the Spirit who's speaking, the Father. It is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Verse 22, 21. More prophecy. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, just read the other day, Uganda of all places as we've had so many contacts with Uganda in our own ministry here. There was a father when his daughter became a Christian. He literally had her set on fire, tried to kill her. She lived through it, and he doesn't want her to get hospital care, but others around her. And so we are instructed to pray for her and for the father to be saved. He literally tried to kill his daughter because she became a Christian. Jesus isn't joking. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will, will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Again, we see that again. Verse 22. For my name's sake. That's why you're going to be hated. But the one who endures to the end, Jesus says, will be saved. Very hard verse coming up. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. I think this... Obviously ties back somewhat back to verse 14 last week. Jesus says, hey, if they reject you and reject your message, then shake the dust off your feet. A little bit different here, but I think some of the idea, verse 23 again. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I'll go ahead and warn you, I'm not going to be very good on verse 23. Got to tell you. I don't have a strong stance, and I'll explain why in a little bit on verse 23b. Would you notice three things with me this morning if you're taking notes? Number one, the expected reality of persecution. The expected reality of persecution. Um, There's two ways to listen to this message. There's two ways to approach this passage. We just read it very slowly. I wish you had the time like I've done. I think I've read this at least 30 times this week. Um, Two ways to approach it. Here's one way, right? And here's where a lot of people in this room, here's how you're going to approach it. That sounds almost theoretical, somewhat hypothetical, and I'm sure that's probably true in someone's life, what we just read. Man, I hate it for them. That's probably really happened. Probably is going to happen to some more. A second way to listen to this passage if you're a Christian is the following. I need to read this passage as Jesus is instructing me what I should expect as I follow his commands and what I should do when what he says is going to happen starts happening. I need to know what to expect in my life. I need to know how to respond in my life. I need to pay attention for me, not just in theory, about somebody else's life. I hope you choose the latter. What is Jesus talking about? Let's go ahead and lay a foundation of the two main things he's talking about, and then you'll be able to put yourself in a group if this is just theory or is this going to be your life. Here's what he's talking about. Number one, evangelism. You say, what is evangelism? Evangelism is wherever you're at, sharing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with other people. But this is also talking about a second scenario, and that is talking about pioneer missions. Pioneer missions is where people have never heard the gospel or there's not enough of a representation there to hear the, that have heard the gospel and are rooted and grounded in the gospel that they can't really reach the amount of people that they have. And so more people need to be sent in there. If you choose to be evangelistic wherever you're at or you choose to take part in pioneer missions, then this passage is exactly what you can expect will happen to you, whether it be here at home or abroad. We're going to hit a note in a moment, and you'll see it on the screen, but notice verse 16 again. Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Guys, the Bible tells us, and it warns us, watch, that when we Christians, the true sheep of God, and not everybody here today is saved, unfortunately. I wish that were the case. You say, Jeff, who here isn't saved? I don't know. But I'll guarantee you, not every person here has completely rested and trusted in Jesus only. Somebody's trusting something else and trying to mix it with Christ, and they need to not do that. But I believe that many people here, the higher percentage, are truly saved. Watch. The Bible says that when wolves come in among us, right, wolves, typically they come in and they want to they teach and, and preach and slip in doctrine. Those are the especially dangerous ones. When the wolves come in among us, that's dangerous, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, I'm going to send... It's, hey, watch out when they come in here. And particularly, I believe in plurality of elders because I believe that we elders need to be watching what is preached and taught and we need to be watching about wolves coming into the gathered church. Right? And I... I could be one of those wolves, and that's why all the other Sunday school teachers and deacons, and especially the other elders, need to be constantly watching my message and make sure that I am not a false teacher, and I'll be doing the same when you teach. Count on it. But what Jesus is saying here is that I'm sending you. It's not just dangerous when they come here. I'm sending you out as sheep when you're going to be greatly outnumbered among the wolves. And this is what you should expect. MacArthur writes the following. Now notice verse 19. I'm sorry, look at verse 18. Jesus says, you'll be taken to governors and kings for my sake. Look down at verse 22. You'll be hated by all. Doesn't mean literally every single person in the world. It means all kinds of people. You're not even going to believe this. All kinds of people are going to hate you for my name's sake. Notice, as we go out, it is dangerous because people will hate us for Jesus' sake. Can I say it? Because of Christ. MacArthur picks up on this and writes the following quote Hear it first, your note is at the end, okay? It's at the end. So hear it first. He writes, Everybody listening? That it is Christ and not Christians themselves that the world opposes is seen in the fact. So here he's gonna say, Here's how we know that's true. That it is Christ and not Christians themselves that the world opposes is seen in the fact, watch, that the more Christ is manifest in us, the more we will be attacked. So you need to ask yourself, have I ever been persecuted for my faith? If it is, it's because people. If it was for your faith, it's because people saw Christ in you. He continues, Conversely, When we do not manifest Christ, we do not incite the world's wrath. You say, I've never had any persecution whatsoever in my life. It's because you are not projecting Christ to people around you. And now to your note here at first, you can write it. second. Listen, he writes the Christian who mimics the world, that's one, or who simply keeps his faith to himself, is in little danger from the world. The Christian who's out living in the world mimics the world, or the Christian who decides, I'm just gonna keep my faith to myself, guess what? You're in little danger of being persecuted from the world. So I need to pause and ask you, everybody here that's of age, and you say, I'm a Christian, do your people know, have your people heard from you that you are a Christian? I'm not talking about, you say, well, everybody can pretty well pick up by now, I've been there so long. I'm pretty sure they know that I'm a Christian. Guys, I'm talking, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about at your work. I'm talking about the people in your family. Young people, I'm talking about in your school. Elementary students, in your school. Junior high, high school. Do the people in your classes know that, have they heard you profess that you are a Christian? If you, if you haven't made that clear, what you're doing it you're playing it safe. And guess what? You don't have to worry about, the ramifications of this passage. But you're going to lose a level of glory in the next life, and you'll be sorry that you played it safe. In the past, so here's what we're doing today. Rather than verse 16, 17, here's a point, 18, 19, 20, here's a point, and then the latter verses, here's the third point. These ideas are scattered all through, so we're not going to be able to do it like we normally do, and so we're just going to pull. Jesus gives us... Various kinds of persecution in the text. So without rereading the whole text, refresh our minds. Here's what he says. People are going to hate you. Hatred is a form of persecution. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to be hated. I don't know if anybody here says, my goal in life, I just want to be hated. We want to be popular. We want people to like us. Christ in you becoming very clear and visible and manifest, you are going to be hated. That'll be a form of persecution. He also mentions being dragged to the government authorities, meaning arrest, meaning put in prison. He also mentions third, flogging, meaning there will be physical consequences after they put a ruling on your life. Flogging. Paul, so the the apostles were flogged by the Jewish high council called the Sanhedrin. At their orders, they were flogged. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says five times he was flogged. He doesn't give us the details. Five times, 39 lashes. This is a real thing. The Jewish court, the Jewish synagogues would try him. He would be flogged, and he keeps on teaching and preaching the gospel. The fourth kind of persecution mentioned is family rejection we don't want to be rejected by our family we love our family you'd be surprised how many christians don't speak their faith because they don't want to lose contact with their family well guess what you're going to lose your family for eternity if you don't share your faith make a choice to share your faith and live with the consequence we're going to talk how to do that and don't be foolish be smart a fifth one is forced to leave your home That's real persecution. And then we could say the ultimate one that he gives is being put to death. Although I don't know, I would put some other things worse than being put to death. I don't want to tell you what they are in case someone's listening and someday I end up being imprisoned and they learn what my greatest, uh, my least favorite things that I would have happen to me. I don't want to say what they are, but they're worse things than death. But then Jesus mentions four sources. Of persecution. Here's what you can count on. There are religious institutions. There are religious systems. Churches. Talk about that in just a moment. There are various levels of government. He talks about regional with governors and national with kings. He talks about family persecuting. Do y'all understand? This really happens. For the last 2,000 years, people all around the world have been handed over to imprisonment and punishment even death by their parents, by their children, brothers and sisters, turning one another in, causing this to happen. Why? Because they have a greater loyalty to a godless government than they do to their family. They have a greater loyalty to a false teaching religion than they do their family. Whether it be idolatry, mythology, emperor worship, Hinduism, Islam, whatever it is, these two things are happening and people are being Christians are being turned in all around the world literally by family members. So this is a definite form, a definite source of punishment. And then we know that basically Jesus has a fourth category as people in all different positions of society. Again, not every person, but let's That age and that age and that status and that status and that color and that color and that color, they all get together and they hate the Lord Jesus Christ in his people. Notice verse 17. Would you look over there? You'll not see it again on the screen, so it's really good to have your Bible open. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. He just gave us a hint of a chronological order, the way it's going to happen. Guys, the very first persecutions that we know happened against Christians happened as the Jewish people persecuted Christians. I learned something this week. I forget who I read it from. I'd never put it together like this. I knew that the Jews were the first ones to persecute the church, but they offered this, and I would have to really check up on it. I don't know who would have that information. They said that after 70 A.D., when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and a million-plus Jews are killed by the Romans, they'd finally been fed up with all the Jewish things they were doing, and part of that was them persecuting Christians, and it just kept causing trouble. This person that I read said that since 70 A.D., the Jews have not been a source of persecution. In other words, they just kind of stopped Stone Cold. But, if you're taking notes, that torch by them has been picked up by many other people because religious systems of all types have often been the main antagonist against the true followers of God. Can I use this word? The visible church has often been the main ones persecuting the true church. I capitalize the second church and I'll lowercase the first one. The visible. We've had so much infighting among ourselves, literally bloodshed for the last 2,000 years by people in this group who claim to be Christ followers persecuting this group who claims to be Christ followers. It's a bunch of nonsense. The Lord has never led to that, but that's been one of the main sources. For a moment, think again of the second. I'm not going to go through all four categories of sources that bring persecution against God's people. But I thought about governments. Legitimate question. I want to ask you a legitimate question. If you were in charge of a government, why in the world would any government persecute Christians? Why? You say, Jeff, what's your point? Legitimate question. Watch. True children of God, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ live moral lives. And they live productive lives. They're not just like takers, takers, takers. These are givers. And these are not like godless people. These are godly people. So whether or not you agree with them or following them or not, these are like literally assets to your society. Why would any government choose to persecute Christians? Well, the answers vary. And so I can't give go through all the scenarios. And they will continue to vary literally nation by nation. Several authors, including William Barclay, offers the following about, let's just talk about Rome. So Rome was in charge during this time. They were the big dog. They started persecuting Christians, and they heavily persecuted Christians. Why? He and others offer several reasons. Apparently, they had this idea that Christians were cannibalistic because of what we do with the Lord's Supper. Saying that we're partaking of Jesus' body and blood. Cannibals, right? Surely you've got to know better than that. Christians had these things called love feasts and they read way too much into that title and they thought they need to be persecuted for that. But the real reasons were the following. Christians refused to take part in emperor worship. The Romans knew, we already have to make exceptions for these Jewish folks over here, but we're gonna force everyone else to at least proclaim that the emperor is a god. Well, here's now this second group that refuses to do that. They're willing to die before they will say that the emperor is god. Another reason is the Romans, it's just the Romans, is that Christianity, as its message spread and more and more people became true Christians, it really started to slow and hamper and, and put out of business certain activities and certain very sinful jobs and trades. I'm thinking of the Ephesians who were very upset because Paul's teaching was going to cut into their cell of little idols of their goddess Diana. And so they wanted that, like this Paul guy is really killing business here. I want to give you the main reason. He said, what was the number one main reason why the Romans persecuted the church? Apparently, it has to do with slaves. I know as I say, slavery is a hot-button issue in our country, and most of our minds immediately go to African slaves that were brought here to the United States. Don't think that way. They had a whole lot more slaves in the Roman Empire, and most of them were not black. Okay, There's just wherever they went, whoever they conquered... It has been estimated that they had up up to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Treated horribly. Some of them treated well, some horribly. They They were not counted as real people. But apparently Rome had a fear at any time that if these 60 million really started revolting, then they wouldn't be able to handle it. So what's the problem with the church? The church, when... Slaves get saved and discover their spiritual gift. All of a sudden, God doesn't see slaves down here. God sees Christians, Jew, Gentile, all alike in one body. And what they found out is that some of the slaves were gifted to be deacons and elders. And so here, these were the ones that were like the main teachers, but they're a slave out in society and they're leaders there. And this really made Rome upset. And so we got to persecute this movement. I want to give you two reasons now broadly. That's specific for Rome. You say, why do governments persecute Christians? Everybody listen, two reasons. Number one, unsaved man loves darkness rather than light. You say, but man, they're assets to society. Sometimes people are like, I don't care how moral your life, your life is. I don't care how godly your life is. In fact, I'd rather you not be here. I just don't like you being around. The other reason is really the greater reason behind that. Write it down. Satan always deceives and stirs people's minds up to persecute the church because he hates God, and the guy's a little wimp. He knows he can't touch God, so he knows God loves the church, and so this this creature, this being, and all of his little horde of demons are constantly trying to stir up people's minds, even in the government, to harass and persecute and, if possible, kill the church. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. If you would hold your spot in Matthew chapter 10, I want us to go over to 1 Peter chapter 4. There's many places we could go, but we're going to have to limit for time's sake. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4, and you're going to want to put a marker there because we're going to come back to it in just a little bit, okay? 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 12. So we're talking about still the expected reality of persecution whether it be from religious institutions, whether it be from governments, family, individuals. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Look what the Bible says. Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. The fiery trial, no doubt, could be all types of trials in our life, but if you really read it in the context of the other two verses we're going to come back to in a little bit, you'll see very clearly he's mainly focusing on persecution. Read verse 12 again. Hear God's word. Everybody listen. Beloved, do not, hey, Christians, grace for you, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings to the degree that you're sharing Christ's suffering. So it's about Christ. So don't be surprised. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The thought occurs to me, guys, and I'm not, I'm not saying like you can picture and you can imagine and the day will come. The day has come. So, ladies and gentlemen, as persecution arises here in the United States, we're going to be tempted to think that we're very unusual. What's going on? Why is this happening to us? What's wrong? Guys, what is actually unusual is the bubble that we Christians have been living in in the United States for the last 244 years. That's what's unusual. This is the norm around the world. To go 244 years in one country without Christians? Do y'all understand, for 244 years, this Bible has been honored. Our judges and our presidents are sworn in by this book. For now. But y'all know as well as I do, very soon the day is coming when just teaching what the Bible, listen, clearly says. And saying that you agree with what the Bible says because the Bible says it. Catch what I just said. Just teaching what the Bible says and saying I agree with the Bible because the Bible says it you will be labeled as one that is giving out hate speech and you will be punished as a criminal. That is coming. It is very, very near. The day is very, very soon when a preacher just literally takes a passage of Scripture and it has a list of sins in it particularly like the list of sins in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. And he just goes line by line calling sin what the Bible calls sin and says because the Bible calls it sin, then it is sin. Listen, no matter if he is doing it with a tone of love and hope and speaking as a matter of biblical fact, it will not matter. He will be labeled as a hate monger and a purveyor of hatred and as a criminal, and it will come with a price. That's what's going to happen. Do you guys, are. I I could tell you, I'm not going to share them. I can tell you specific situations where there are people who are right now, who are right now being threatened to lose their jobs because of how they think. You understand that? So our freedoms are being taken away. If you think a certain way and you express it in some way, listen, it could be the dumbest thought. And there's a lot of dumb thoughts. There's a lot of wrong thoughts out there. And I have my own. I'm sure I just don't know which ones they are yet. Right? I'm sure I have my own. I've had them through my life, and the Lord's had to correct some. I'm sure he has more to correct. But do you all understand that there are people who are being, like their place in an institution or their place at work is being called for and highly pressured because they believe. Even if they believe wrong, whatever happened to the freedom to be wrong, that's now being taken away. It's coming. Mark it down. Number two this morning. So you have to agree with the worldly mindset or soon here in our beloved United States, our own government is going to start persecuting those who stand for Scripture. Number two, God's purposes for persecution. This is a short point, but it's very necessary. God's purposes for persecution. Would you look back at verse 18? Look at verse 18 after you've written that. Jesus says, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. For my sake. Why? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So we could say here's what's happening. They're going to be taken before uh, governors and kings because of Jesus and we could also say for Jesus. So why are they being taken? there? Because of Jesus in their life. Why are they being taken there? On God's perspective for Christ to share his message. Hold your spot here if you would. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 would be another one that we would go into and couple it with chapter 11 if we had time, but we don't. But just look at, you're going to mainly focus on verse 4. That's what will be on the screen. But I'm going to back up what will not be on the screen. Look at chapter 8 in Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 1. So Stephen has just been stoned to death. As a result of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Notice verse 1. Again, it's not on the screen. And Saul, this man will eventually get saved and become Paul. And Saul, But right now, he's a horrible persecutor. And Saul approved of his execution. He liked it. He approved of it. He was like one of the main witnesses. He held people's clothes while they threw the stones. Not rocks, stones that killed Stephen. But notice verse 1 says, And there arose on that day, the day Stephen died, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So the church at this time, hey, we're, in chapter, we're at the end of chapter 7. Listen carefully. At this point, the church is years old, several years old. But it's still bottled up in Jerusalem. And I think the Lord allows this to happen on purpose because Christianity was supposed to have gone on out into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But they're still bottled up in Jerusalem and Christians getting saved and we're going to move everybody to Jerusalem. But the Lord has a solution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, just like the Bible predicted in chapter 1 verse 8. And Samaria... Except the apostles. Notice that phrase. Apparently, the apostles stayed in the cauldron of Jerusalem and they continued to base their operation there. Now, look down to verse 4. Now, those who were scattered, unnamed Christians, watch what the Bible says. They went about preaching the word. So, the church, truly saved people, are in Jerusalem, having a good time, ministering to one another, having some struggles, difficulties with the local Jewish authorities but not really moving on, not being pioneer missionaries. The whole world was a pioneer mission field at that point. Finally, the Lord moves them on, and they start being scattered around. But wherever they go, they take the light. Wherever they go, they're sharing their faith, and they're sharing the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word of God began to spread in a mighty way. I'm going to give you three reasons. The third one, the middle one, is the main one of our text. Three reasons why the Lord has allowed persecution. The first one is persecution purifies the church. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? Guys, when persecution comes, Christians start getting urgent with God, we become more fervent in our prayers, we become more holy in our life, and people that are pretenders all of a sudden don't want to be affiliated with the church. Right now in America, it can be politically advantageous to be connected to the church. You hear a lot of politicians talk a lot of God speaking, a lot of Bible talk, and they're not even saved. Why? They're looking for votes. And you got a lot of people, it's good for business to be a member of a church, particularly one of the large churches, because again, it drums up business. Persecution comes, all of a sudden, I'm not a associated with them another main reason it'll be the third one in your note and that is that persecution allows us an opportunity to show that we love the lord jesus christ he is a greater treasure in our life than even life itself he is a great treasure but particular to matthew chapter 10 what is god's purpose for persecution it often creates opportunities to verbalize jesus's identity and jesus's teaching that were otherwise not possible. Persecution opens doors of opportunity. Jeff, what do you mean here? Verse number 18 says, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. The previous verse talked about courts and synagogues. Do you see God's purpose? Go back 2,000 years ago. You have 12 apostles. Could you imagine if they went up to the secretary lady where the Sanhedrin court, the 71-member court in Jerusalem convened and said, Hey, listen, hey, my name's Pete. This is my buddy John. We'd like to meet with the Sanhedrin. When, they, when, when do they convene again? Uh, well, Pete and John, listen, uh, what's your purpose here? They're meeting on such and such a day, but they have a full agenda. Why would you like to... We're, we're followers of Jesus Christ, and we want to present to them the gospel of Jesus. Now, we know that they killed him, but God has raised him from the dead, and we'd like to share that message. Do you think they're getting that appointment? There's no way they're getting that appointment. But literally what Jesus predicts ends up happening throughout the book of Acts. If you were to follow it, Acts 4, Acts 12, Acts 13, Acts 18, Acts 23, 24, 25, let me throw some names at you. Not only did they get before the Sanhedrin, but the followers of the Lord get before Herod, the Tetrarch, before Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia, the southern region of Greece, before Felix, the governor, before Festus, the governor, before Agrippa, the king. And ultimately we know that Paul gets all the way to Rome and he's really in close with the emperor's guards. And some of them start getting saved. How is that possible? These are open doors that could never happen if it wasn't for persecution and they were to use Persecution as a means To share the gospel but notice Verse 19 I need to say Three things About verse 19 and 20 look at it again So It's for purity It's to show Jesus is great but it also Persecution opens doors of opportunity Otherwise closed verse 19 When they deliver you over do not Be anxious how you are to speak Or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Can I say two things this is not? All right? Those two verses, you see it? Do not be anxious how you to speak or what you are to say. It will be given to you in the moment. These are not a template for normal ministry. Okay? It's not a template for normal ministry. I think a lot of people think that way. In fact, I've heard some folks before, they literally have this philosophy. They're like pastors, and they kind of maybe read a little bit during the week, but their mindset is, oh, God will give me something when it's time to get up and preach. Okay, And they have this idea. Use this text. That is not what this text means. This is not a text that says Sunday school teachers and pastors and teachers like that have an opportunity to just relax, chill, don't need to study, just get up and wing it. God will give you something to say in the moment. No, this is a unique situation. This does not mean that when you and I go out and try to witness to someone about our faith, that we don't need to study and be prepared with a specific plan and and, and know where we're going in the Word of God to present a compelling gospel presentation. All the while yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit to apply each individual presentation to that person's needs, but you need to have studied the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God. First Timothy, he tells him over and over, you need to spend time studying, give attention to the reading, give attention to studying and teaching. So it's important. This is not like, hey, don't worry about studying. Jeff, what are you doing, man? You're totally wasting your time. What are you doing with these notes and spending all that time? God will give it to you in the moment. No. But what it is, another thing that it is not, is this is not... And automatic. Let's remember this when it comes. We don't just rest and say, well, I'm being persecuted, so I'm going to give you know, no thought whatsoever. I'm just going to like, kick it into neutral. And somehow in the moment, God's just going to take over. And I'm just probably going to go maybe even into a slight coma with my eyes open. And God's just going to start speaking through my mouth. No, that is not an excuse for that. What does this text mean? Carefully listen. God, let this sink in. What a sentence. God uses human mouths as instruments. He communicates through, but he expects his persecuted sheep and messengers to invite the Holy Spirit to speak through them and in the moment to rely on the Holy Spirit to speak through them. And in that moment, he, the Spirit of the Father, will actually speak through human beings. But you must invite it and you rely. Lord, I don't know what to tell him, but I am relying on you. What What happened in that? situation, the same thing that's happened with literally tens and tens of thousands of martyrs, God will speak through you in that moment. Number one, we've seen the reality, the expected reality of persecution. We've seen, what's God's purpose? Hey, it's a witnessing, greater witness, more witness, people that you'd never be able to reach. And then kind of running all through our text this morning is this third thought, proper responses to persecution. So, what is a proper response to persecution? I think there are at least four main ones, and let's go ahead and hit two right out of the gate. Would you let your eyes fall back on verse 16? So, when it comes, we should expect it. When I'm evangelizing and when I'm taking part in pioneer missions, what should I expect? Persecution. How am I to respond? Verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Hey, grace, if you listen, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Whether it be hatred, imprisonment, flogging, family persecution, being forced to leave your house or being put to death, what do you do? Be wise. Hey, you're out among wolves. Be wise. Translation Be smart. Be prudent and be innocent. Be wise, be innocent. He uses the illustration of a snake here. And can I throw a couple of words that as soon as I say it, it's probably going to strike us as kind of negative connotation. A snake is cunning. A snake is shrewd. Not only when danger comes, it's like, hey, I don't want to fight that fight. He very shrewdly and cunningly gets away. But when it's his turn to be on the prey, a snake is very cunning and shrewd and wise in overpowering, in partaking, in capturing its prey. It has a shrewdness. And by the way, that is a positive thing. You say shrewd and cunning is a positive. Jesus is using this in a positive way. The, the negative thing about a snake is it has animosity, right? It wants to do harm. The positive is it's shrewd and cunning and wise. Guys, the good thing about a dove is it's very innocent. Apparently, the negative thing about a dove is, in its innocence, it doesn't want to hurt anybody. It has no animal. The snake has animosity, but it has a lot of wisdom and shrewdness. The dove doesn't want to hurt anybody, but the unfortunate thing about a dove is it's very naive. Apparently, they're one of the easiest birds to catch of all the birds. So the Lord is not saying, take the negative aspects of these two animals. What He is saying is, take the wisdom of this one and take the innocence of this one and put them together. Write this down. Though we are spiritual sheep, and sheep are certainly innocent, but sheep, frankly, are stupid. We just are. We're sheep. We tend to be stupid. Though we are spiritual sheep, we are not to be stupid, but shrewd. And we must ensure, this is where we have to do a real heart check. We need to be sincere. That's the idea of innocent. When you're innocent, you don't want to do people harm. You actually want to do people good. Hey, you say, man, I'm witnessing for Christ. This just keeps on coming up in our our study of the book of Matthew. It's coming up in my own life. The Lord's burdened me about this. I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a witness for the Lord. Okay, be wise. Be shrewd. Be cunning. Be innocent. Check your heart. Make sure your goal is to truly help people not to win an argument, not to be seen as the smartest person. Let your motive be an innocent motive. I think summing up this idea, what the Lord is really trying to say here is the following. The gospel is offensive. It's offensive on its own. It's offensive enough without us adding to that by our offensive methods. That's what the Lord is saying. Hey, listen, your sheep going out in the midst of wolves, you have what they need. Your mission is to go... Let the Lord use you to turn the hearts of these wolves into sheep. And the Lord's going to use you. But because your sheep amidst wolves, you need to be very wise and you need to be very innocent. Check your heart is your true motive. And innocent is your methods. Wise are they wise. Does everybody understand that last part of that note? The gospel is offensive. Have you ever thought about what part of the gospel is offensive? What's offensive about the gospel? You gotta go up, I heard two or three. Let me put the two or three I heard together. Did you catch it? Here's offensive. You've not shared the gospel if you've not brought someone to a point where they agree that the word of God says, God says they are a sinner. In other words, here's what you do in soul winning is Confessing is true of yourself, you let the person know that you have a sin nature and that you have committed acts of sin. You've thought things and said things and done things you don't want anybody else to. How do you know that about me? I guarantee it's true. I know it's true because you're a descendant of Adam. You are a sinner and your sin has offended a holy God and you deserve to go to hell. Here's something offensive. No matter what you do from this moment forward, you you, none of you or I can ever be good enough to go to heaven. That's offensive. I don't want to hear that. That's the truth. Beyond that, Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, is the only way. Well, we kind of like to think there's these other ways. No, Jesus is the only way to heaven. All of those things, that's very offensive. So the gospel's plenty offensive without you or I adding offensive methods. I say we would go back. Let's go back one more time, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's catch the next two verses. So as you're turning there, we wrote that Peter says, don't be surprised at the fire trial when it comes to test you. Rejoice insofar as you're sharing Christ's sufferings. But now we need to go back and say, hey, wait a minute. We're to be wise and innocent. Peter continues in verse 14. If you, so everybody, let's learn from the word of God. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, notice that. You're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you're insulted, again, he says the fiery trial back in verse 12, verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But now watch verse 15 as a qualifier. But, hey, if you're persecuted for Christ, you're blessed. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, lawbreaker, or as a meddler. Don't suffer as a meddler. Not on the screen. If you have your Bible open, look down at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. You're suffering while doing good. You're suffering for the cause of Christ. You're suffering, as he says, you're insulted for the name of Christ. Not because you're a murderer, thief, evildoer, or a meddler. I wrote something down the other day. I will read it for time's sake. Are you with me? Not, listen, not all persecution has a promise of God's blessing. So here's a person. They have a favorite sports team. And it just happens to be the rival of this person who has their favorite sports team. Just truthful. This person may persecute the snot out of this person. I'm just persecuting all that. Okay, that doesn't carry God's blessing. You're being persecuted because you're pulling for that team. It has nothing to do with this text. Now, more pertinent, to the situations going on in our country. And I'm, I'm telling, maybe my mind does go there because I'm hearing it, but I'm not trying to go out of my way to look for things to apply. I want to just go through the Word of God. But can I say this? Those who are intentionally destroying public property, intentionally destroying private property, I don't know that it's going to happen, It may happen in a few areas. It depends on the local authorities, I'm sure. But if those people who are doing that and have done that, y'all know there's video out there. If they were to be investigated, arrested, prosecuted, and sentenced to jail time, some of them, sincerely in their heart, will think they are being persecuted for the cause. Well, they need to know you're not being persecuted. You're being punished because you committed crimes. Those are crimes. You're not being persecuted. And there are no doubt some people who are out doing some of these things, they think they're doing God's work. God is not in what they're doing. They're law-breaking. That is law-breaking. To go and destroy people. All you've got to do is read the law, the first five books of the Bible. To destroy public things and destroy someone else's property, that is not your business to be doing. There are other ways to make your point. One of the reasons we don't support, I don't support all this junk that's going on in our land. God's not on that movement. God's not in that They're breaking the law. So whenever that, if some get punished for that, oh, woe is me. No, you don't have the blessing of God. This is those who are being persecuted for the cause of Christ. So I want to drive this home for just a few more minutes. Be wise. Don't be stupid? Be shrewd, be cunning, be innocent. I'm going to hit you with a couple of quotes. Everybody with me? Barclay writes the following. Often the Christians had to die for their faith. But they must not throw away their lives in a way that did not really help the faith. Jesus, hey, listen, your sheep going out among wolves, be wise. Be wise. Be innocent. Be wise. Don't throw listen, Christian, your life is valuable. Don't throw it away. J.C. Rowell adds the following: He's going to give two extremes. To, uh, this is some listening now. To avoid persecution by holding our tongues and keeping our religion entirely to ourselves is one extreme. We are not to err in that direction. Well, I might get persecuted. I'm going to avoid persecution. I'm just going to be quiet. I'm on my way to heaven. That's enough for me. We are to avoid that extreme. But then he says, To court persecution and thrust our religion upon everyone we meet without regard to place and time or circumstances is another extreme. We are not to go in that extreme. So how could I put that to you this morning? Kind of my thought runs this way. Guys, when we're in a dangerous situation, we need to understand, I keep using these categories, we need to understand the difference. Hang with me. We need to understand the difference between primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. You know, a lot of people stir people up and get them angry at them over tertiary doctrines that aren't even that clear in Scripture. And others, like, create huge crevices over secondary things. It's these primary things that you're gonna really need to be spending your time on with the lost person. Know the difference between primary, secondary, tertiary, and also be, listen, evaluate the cost. If I share my faith, if I speak, then what's going to be the cost? Or what's going to be the cost if I do not share my faith in this person's life? These are the evaluations. Is this tertiary? Is this third level? Is this even second level? Or is this a primary thing? If I speak now in this setting, then what's going to be the ramifications? Am I putting this person in a position where they have like no choice left but to persecute me back? Be wise. Be innocent. Let me throw this in while I'm doing it. Christians, Americans, Graceview. Know the difference between defending, listen please, know the difference between defending the faith and between defending various forms of government and various economic systems. So Jeff, what are you talking about? I love democracy, right? But there are a lot of people who automatically equate getting in trouble and stirring people up and inviting persecution in discussions over communism or socialism or that-ism or that-ism, like that's automatically, or capitalism, like that's automatically me defending the faith. Now, you need to know the difference between primary doctrines of Scripture and styles of government. Again, I love that I've been reared in a democratic republic. I think it's the second greatest government that there's been or that there will be. You say, second, yes, the greatest government is a monarchy. Absolutely, I'm not talking about England. Nah, don't want that. You say, what monarchy? A monarchy is a king. The greatest government is a king that is wise and benevolent and powerful. Why You have to have all three, wise, benevolent, like really has his people's good in his heart, in his actions. Wise, benevolent, and powerful because you got to defend the kingdom. Well, the greatest government will be when the Lord Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom and he is all-wise, all-benevolent, all-powerful. That is the best government. We're not there yet. Till then, give me a democratic republic. That's my opinion. You can be wrong if you want to choose something else. Notice verse 22. Look at verse 22 very quickly. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Once again, I need to begin with what this is not. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not saying that if a person endures persecution to the end, even to the point of death, that that is what saved them. That person has to go to heaven. They died for the cause. That is not what this text means. What this one of the things this text here is implying is listen, one of the ways you can tell who is a true Christian and who will be saved are those who continue and endure the persecution. How do you know a true believer? Because they're not in and out and they're not up and down and they're not hot and cold. They just continue. Even when the persecution comes, they remain loyal and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, you could write the following. True Christians cannot just stop trusting Jesus as their savior. I can't unsee, I can't unknow who he is. I'm not going to say that it is impossible for a Christian to say something about their faith that they don't really mean to avoid persecution. I'm going to say they shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. And I'm sure Jesus has plenty to say about that before this, passage, this chapter is over. But a true Christian in his heart of hearts cannot stop trusting Christ. Why? Continuance, this is all through the Bible. Continuance is a hallmark of a genuine Christian. You say, what do they mean? You just keep trusting Christ. You can't untrust Christ. You can't become unsaved. Jesus says, You endure to the end will be saved. And this saved means delivered. He may deliver you from the persecution. He might do that. If you keep enduring, He might deliver you from the persecution. But probably as much as anything, what the Lord means is, what I'll do is I'll deliver you from this world to a world that has no more persecution and you will have run your race well. Now I need to finish with verse 23. We're talking about what's our response. So far I've given you three. Persecution comes because of the threat of persecution. Be wise, be innocent, and endure. Endure to the end. Now verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. But, guys, I want to, because I want to finish rather on the beginning of verse 23, rather than the end, let me go ahead and go to the end of verse 23. Because it's a very difficult passage. And I don't want to be labeled as one who skipped the difficult passage. So, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to acknowledge the difficult passage, throw you out some options, and tell you that I don't know which one it is. Okay? That's what I'm going to do. Look at verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, So he's telling the 12, but we know that this applies beyond them. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I've whittled this down to five or six options. Here's one. Is Jesus saying, in verse 23, Hey, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel on this short term mission before I catch up with you. I'm I'm gonna catch up with you guys and I'll overhaul you and we'll be back together. You're not gonna, you guys just go and you're not gonna hit them all, but that we'll get back together. Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. A second one. Could it be that the Lord is saying, hey, you men, early Christians, you're not gonna cover the nation of Israel before I come, my spirit, at Pentecost? Maybe. Another is, even before that, you will not cover all of Israel with the gospel message of who I am and my, and, and, and my death on the cross, what it's going to mean before some of you see me come, as I really am, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe that's that one. The one I really don't have time to, to go into and one that I really need to look at more because some of the ones that I respected the most is the one I'm about to give you. You're probably going to be like, what? Some of the best And most trustworthy teachers of the New Testament believe that what Jesus is actually saying here is that you will not have finished going through the towns of Israel before I come, Jesus comes to judge Israel in A.D. 70. Like what? Too long to go into it right now. But before he comes back in A.D. 70, And literally where where God used the Romans to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And he kept warning the Jews, you don't need to offer any more sacrifices. Sacrifices have already been made. So God just destroys the temple and there is no temple there and there are no sacrifices today. And we know that the Jews have now stopped persecuting Christians. Was this the judgment of Christ? His coming down. Some say that's what it meant. You won't cover Israel until that happens in AD 70. Most of us upon first reading, but if you keep reading, it's kind of hard. Most of our minds immediately go to the second coming of the Lord in glory. But think about that. You will, verse 23, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, hasn't all the cities of Israel heard about Jesus? Is that really? Some project that view and say, Well, what it's really talking about is this group of witnesses that are in the tribulation period, and they're going to go through Israel, and they'll not cover it all. Before the Lord himself comes back. Maybe that applies. One more I found very, very interesting. This is totally different. Totally different. One view says this. You ready? Hey guys, in the tribulation, not those 12, but still future. Keep hiding from town to town in Israel. As the persecution comes against the Jews. Keep hiding from town to town in Israel. I'll return before you run out of places to hide. Maybe. Maybe one. So. Sorry. Look at verse 23 at the beginning. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, and then the rest of the verse. So guys, let me kind of, as I'm winding down this morning, we need wisdom. As persecution starts coming, we need wisdom. Not just to know, like literally you say, Jeff, this is kind of just theory to us. Because it's not really that bad here in the United States. And really, in fact, it's like almost non-existent. Okay, when it comes... We need to start asking ourselves, God, I need wisdom to know not just when to speak or to be silent. Lord, I need to know when to stay or when to go. Because you're going to say, Jeff, you're saying the opposite of what this text is saying. I believe if you go back and read this over and over and over, I'm going to, I'm going to propose to you, there is an implied teaching. Verse 23 again. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. It is not just like, hey, flee for your life and self-preservation. No, it's flee there because the work is not being effective there Keep your life as long as it is possible and go to the next place to be fruitful. If you're taking notes, write this down. I believe that there's an implied imperative in this. Do not let persecution deter you from staying on the course, from staying on mission at all costs. Why? Because time is running out. I'm coming back. Time is running out. Time is short. So don't let some persecution, okay, you may need to leave there and go to another place, but you keep witnessing. You keep telling people about The Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Don't let persecution just, okay, I'm supposed to flee and just save my life. No, it isn't just about saving our lives. I go back to verse 16. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus is sending out his followers and he knows the risk. So why is he sending us? If he knows the risk. (sighs) Another note. I know my time is gone, so I'm going to read instead of preach these points. But I want you to hear it. God's love is so great that he is willing to sacrifice the earthly lives of his, could I add the word, current children in order to gain the eternal lives of the presently lost. I didn't have those words in there. I'll say it again. So if Jesus knows the risk, then why does he send us out? Why did he send them out? Apparently, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. And the one that wasn't martyred, man, they tried to kill him. And they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. And Paul was beheaded. So add add him in there among the 12. Why is the Lord doing that? Again, God loves God's love is so great. He is really willing to sacrifice the earthly lives, earthly lives of his current children in order to gain the eternal lives of the presently lost. Jeff, how do we know this is true? Here's why. Because God did not spare his only begotten son for us. Again, Colin Ashley, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That second verse in How Great Thou Art, the author had it correctly. He says, and when I think... That God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on a cross, my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. God didn't spare his one and only son. Do you think he will spare, always spare, the earthly lives of his adopted children? Guys, listen, no, we're expendable for the cause, but it's just this life. Not direct quotes, this is taken from a handout. John Hutchison, who our ministry supports as a field director for Frontline Missions. So, again, not a direct quote, that's why it's so choppy. These are points that he preached here a couple of years ago. Hutchison says the gospel's advance involves taking risks. American believers have lost the concept of risk taking for Christ. As Americans, we value security, but God has not promised it in this life. Very convicting here. He nails us. He says, we tend to love our lives too much. We love our lives too much. We often fail to value Jesus as life's greatest treasure. We think our life is more valuable than his glory, and so surely that can't be the plan. God, frontline missions is all about going to the world's hardest-to-reach places, Well, why are they hard to reach? You need a four-wheeler to get there? No, they're hard to reach because they don't want you there. Piper, in speaking to his church, adds the following couple of sentences. He tells his congregation the following. Let's not elevate safety in missions to the point where you assume if one of our missionaries is killed, we made a mistake. It's going to happen. How do we know it's going to happen? Jesus predicted it. Can I add to his comment? And it'll be worth it. It's easy for you to say, Jeff. I know. Close your Bibles. Can we agree on a couple of things? Number one, this is not a speech that you'd give to people if you really want them to keep following you? Like, that's the message for your twelve? You just called them and that's what you're telling them. They're gonna die and they're gonna be persecuted and hated and put into jail and flogged. And like, really? I, I don't think that's very popular. Hey, can we agree on this? This message, not mine, but the Lord's, is not the health and wealth message that you hear in a lot of the large churches. Can I go ahead and say the largest church down there in Houston? I dare say, I I might be wrong, but I highly doubt down there in Houston and that very large church and other churches like it. I dare say they have never expounded that passage of Scripture. That just doesn't fly. But Jesus tells us the truth. So I finish today with three questions. Question number one. If you knew that God was calling you to something and it would be dangerous. But it's God calling you. Would you do it? It's going to be dangerous. Number two. Let's kick that up. Not only that it would be dangerous. But if you knew, here's the key, you knew it would surely result, God is calling you to something you knew would surely result in your financial and physical and relational harm in this life, but it would benefit you and others through eternity, If you knew God was calling you something, and you knew, not not, not theory, it could be dangerous, like it will cost you physically, financially, relationally. You know it will cost you, but it's going to benefit you and others all through eternity. Would you do it? These 12 heard it, and they were told this is what's going to happen, and they still went. And so my third question is, Does the call of danger repel you? Or does the call of danger followed by glory attract you? Does this repel you? Do you know there are some people that might even be one person who hears this. They may be watching online. And honestly, it just attracts them so much. Like, yes! Yes! That's what I want. I want to give my life to that. And they're like, and, and, they, and they're going to go to their neighbor, and they're going to go to the people at work, and go to the people at school, and they may even end up in a whole farm field on a frontier pioneer mission field. And they may die for the cause, but they're like, this, the, that's the life. I, I want a life of significance. Most people are like, yeah, that's nice theory about other people. I'm just going to keep my faith to myself. Which category are you in? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before we pray, heads bowed, eyes closed. Our takeaways this morning are we must remember the persecuted according to Hebrews 13.3. Pray for those that we know are persecuted. Another takeaway. Christian, listen. This mandate to be a witness is for us. It's for all of us. It's for Graceview. These warnings are for us. We must be a witness for Christ. How is that going in your life? We must support to the degree that the Lord calls us. Every person listening, maybe online, maybe next week is when this is heard. Maybe a year from now when this is heard. Can all of us say that we... in? to the degree that the lord has called us are we supporting pioneer missions that is especially what this passage is talking about am i being evangelistic in my own life and can i say that i am following god's leading am i praying for am i praying for pioneer missions am i supporting pioneer missions with my giving can it be said That of you, if the Lord is guiding you and directing you to pioneer missions, that you literally say, I'm going to pursue that this morning, this passage, and what the Lord's been doing in my life. I am going to pursue a foreign mission field, not just here evangelistically, but on a foreign field where they have not heard or there's not enough Christians to reach the need. And then our takeaway is this. When persecution comes. Accept it. And endure it. Expect it. And all through it be wise. And innocent. And asking the Lord for wisdom. When to speak and when to be silent. and When to stay and when to go. Father. Father would you. Let us right now. Have such a spirit of worship about us and a spirit of surrender to you that, Lord, we will go and do and give and speak whatever you tell us to do. Lord, let me live my own life in such a surrendered state that if you call me and Deanna to any place in the world that we will go. And then, Lord, let me be found faithful. But, Lord, let us all be wise and innocent. And then, Lord, when the persecution comes, and I know that it is coming, and it will be good for us, Lord, let us endure it. Lord, let us be trusting in you to speak through us in those moments. Father, I commit this congregation to your care in the coming week. Lord, let us be witnessing. Let Christ be very evident and manifest in our lives at all costs this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Have a great week.